Take your Bibles, if you would now, please, and turn in them to Mark chapter 16. About 16 months ago, we began studying the book of Mark, and we have, of recent times, been seeking to pace ourselves so that this morning, we would time it so that we would, on Easter Sunday, study what the Gospel of Mark reveals about Jesus' resurrection. Again, we are in the deepest heart of the Gospel Today, focusing on what we're calling the second half, and as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we read just a little bit ago, the matters of the greatest importance in all of the universe, higher than anything and everything else, is the death of Christ for our sins in accordance with the scripture, his being buried, and his being raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So today, simple title of Christ Rises from the Dead, Angels Reveal It, Stunning His Followers. And we'll just think in three portions here, the going to the tomb, in the tomb, and then the leaving from the tomb. A few things to note as we begin. Mark's account is the shortest of the four gospel accounts of the resurrection of Christ. He devotes eight verses to it. We'll talk about the other verses there that appear to, to also be devoted to that. Matthew devotes 15 verses, Luke spends 12, and John gives us 18 about those opening hours after Jesus rose. Interestingly, God gives some very differing accounts in the four Gospels, which tempts doubters to question the veracity, the truthfulness of what the Bible is telling us, because at times it sounds contradictory. But it does seem that confusion reigned for the first responders on the scene that morning. And just as if a car accident happened that had a dozen witnesses, and you would never get two verbatim accounts of that event because it all happened so instantly, so quickly, and so powerfully. Every single account would be told somewhat differently, and there would probably be details that would sound differing or contrasting to each other. And in that sense, given all the shock and the good trauma of that morning, it's actually pretty remarkable how aligned the four gospel accounts are. And we do know that each of them is inspired by God himself, the Holy Spirit, moving each of those four men to write these accounts, and he lets it stand, each count being unique angle of the most stunning, powerful event in all of human history. And Mark gives us some unique aspects. Also, before we begin... Recognize that all of the story is actually post-resurrection. There are no details given in any of the four Gospels of the actual resurrection. As thorough as the Bible is about the dying and the death of Christ, it's actually surprisingly mysterious in his rising. Actually, the resurrection takes place between Chapter, the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16. And then finally, there is no actual appearance of Jesus if we hold to Mark 1, 16, 1 through 8, being the, the sure words of Mark himself 
And most of your Bibles probably have some indicator, some bracket, some explanation, starting with verse 9 that goes through the end of the chapter, that those words are not in some of the earliest manuscripts. And so this morning, we'll focus on what we do have confidence in those first eight verses. And next week, Lord willing, we'll talk a little bit about which ending is right and true and all of that. So would you follow along as I read the account that Mark has given us in the first eight verses of chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Father, in this amazing section and in this unique angle that Mark tells of the story of your son rising from the dead, it's familiar to us, and yet we acknowledge there is still so much that we have to learn from what you have revealed here. So this morning, through your truth, would you deepen our appreciation for the resurrection, for the way it fits within the whole gospel would you deepen our awe of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and all he has accomplished. Make us ever more aware in our own lives of the power of the resurrection for our daily living, I pray. In Christ's risen name, amen. So verses 1 to 4 describe going to the tomb, and as we noted, the resurrection has actually occurred we have little detail about exactly what moment uh, or hour of the night that it has happened. Matthew 28 gives us a little bit of insight, maybe a little earlier than uh, Math, uh, Mark picks up, that there was a great earthquake. So if you recall, at the death of Christ, there was an earthquake that split rocks and opened up graves. And if you remember then, we were told that the dead saints that were raised were walking through the city. So here appears to be a second earthquake, both of them marking the profound, massive uh, events that are happening and the earth, the creation, seemingly quivering, quaking under the awesomeness of it all. Creation seems to feel the resurrection of Christ even more than mankind does, though it is for mankind. And Matthew goes on to describe 
that the angel comes, rolls back the stone, and sits on it. One of the differing accounts from Mark. His appearance is like lightning, his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards, if you remember, that were posted there, trembled and became like dead men, either passing out or going into some kind of seizure, uh, but completely taken out of the scene. At some point, they must regain consciousness and they must take off because they are a non-factor in all of the four accounts of what takes place from this moment on. Um, but at some point here, Mark now picks up the story in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, three women that he names, and Luke tells us that there were other women as well, so there's a troop, an entourage of them coming specifically to anoint the mutilated body of Jesus Christ that has now been in the grave, they believe, for about 40 hours with some kind of perfume or sweet-smelling substances, perhaps to control the smell somewhat, but probably more out of an expression of honor and dignity and care. And the other times when Jesus was alive that loved followers of his, of his anointed him, it was always with those things which were of extreme value and fragrance. And if you remember, just two to three days earlier, a woman in Bethany anointed Jesus over his head. And they were upset at that point, some of the people, and he says, leave her alone. Don't trouble her. She has done a beautiful thing to me. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And now these women come after the burial to also anoint his body. Once again, the camera focuses and zooms in on the women of faith. It's been quiet for about the disciples for quite some time. At Jesus' very dying breath, we're told the women watched. At his burial, the women watched. And now at his resurrection, the women are the first ones that God takes to the scene. It is especially meaningful because in first century Palestine, the testimony of women was either disallowed in court, in legal proceedings, or carried very little weight. The striking irony here in the resurrection story is, this is who God chooses to be his witnesses. And if you think about it, back in Luke 2, God chose shepherds, and if you remember their reputation, not their testimony in court also carried little weight. But I love this. Those with no voice in society, in their culture, God makes the voices that have the greatest worth with the greatest message and have the longest lasting testimony of anyone. God doesn't need the world's experts or the credibility that the world gives to witnesses. He chooses the least, the least likely, the lowest, and exalts them to testify. And it's the same reason that he's chosen you to testify. He's not looking for experts. He's looking for people who so love him and so love the gospel that they simply cannot be silent about it. Surprisingly, though, even among these faithful women, there is no hint among any of them that they believe Jesus is going to rise from the dead this third day after his death. 
So verse two and verses 2 and 3 give us a little more of the timing and the, the, the dawning on them at some point here. we got a stone in front of this tomb. Uh, so the tombs of the rich particularly would have stones that served as doors to keep grave robbers out and wild animals out. They would cut these round stones, roll them down this incline to the entrance, and removing that stone was a lot harder than putting it in place. And Mark, or, yeah, Mark tells us in, in verse uh, 4 that it's a particularly large stone because it's a tomb of a wealthy uh, Joseph of Arimathea. And remember at this point, as far as we know, the women have no idea that, guards have been, that the tomb has been sealed and that guards have been posted there. But God takes care of both of those problems. Neither of them are an issue. By the time they get there, the stone is rolled back in verse 4. So thank you, angel of the Lord, for making it easy for them. And stating the obvious, this is not so Jesus could leave the tomb. He's gone. But so his followers could get visual validation because the news was just too big to believe, even to take an angel's word for it. The sorrowing here likely turns to panic and distress. Perhaps they're assuming, as some of the other gospel accounts indicate, that someone has taken his body. The Romans, Vandals, whatever it might be, somebody, they just called them they. And there's, again, no sudden dawning on them at this point. Well, he said this was going to happen. Verses 5 to 7 then describe their short time in the tomb itself. They enter it where they see what Mark describes as a young man sitting on the right dressed in a white robe, and it alarms them. Um, so we know from the other gospel accounts that spell it out that this is an angel that has taken on human appearance. Uh, we don't know why God chooses to do it in that way. Uh, Luke also calls them men, human-looking in other words. And Luke adds that they were perplexed about this. Luke also notes that there's two men. So is there one angel or two? Is it possible Mark was only identifying the one who spoke? Or perhaps both of them weren't there the whole time? Um, and let's realize also that it's probably not just one or two angels around this scene. It's one or two visible ones. There could perhaps be thousands upon thousands upon tens of thousands upon hundreds of thousands of angels. It's interesting. The last time we saw them in the story of Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. When they ministered to Jesus because his own disciples failed to and they were asleep. The angels came and cared for Christ. And then... They're gone. All of that suffering, he does alone. Without the divine help, he bears it all. He walks through it all. And then he rises and the angels are invited into the celebration and they get to be the first messengers. Jesus doesn't even choose to announce it himself. He tasks it to them. Verse 6, the angel tells them, first of all, not to be alarmed. And this is a very common statement. It seems almost every angelic encounter we have in scriptures starts with, do not be alarmed. Do not be afraid. Because there is such holy glory when you see them, even in human form, that it is not simply unsettling. It is terrifying. They need to tell us the holiness in a good way terrifies you, but we've come with a message 
Don't be terrified. Don't be alarmed. Don't be suspicious. And he affirms, you're searching for the right person. You're searching in the right tomb. You didn't forget and go to a wrong one. But you're not searching in the right place for a risen Savior. And Luke 24 is the one who includes the line that we often quote. Why do you seek the living among the dead? That's what's implied in this statement. If Jesus said he would rise from the dead in three days, then why did you come to the grave to look for him? Because that is not where living people dwell. And let's just note here that this is us as well, isn't it? We hear and read God's words and promises in our quiet time, in sermons, in books, podcasts, blogs, posts, all kinds of ways. And they often have little to no effect on us. <coughs> we hear a promise. At the moment, it might not seem relevant to us in our situation. And we on and go on with life. And perhaps never recall them to mind again. Often, the magnificent, powerful, beautiful, precious promises of God are heard less by us than the world's messages and make less impact on us. Forgetfulness of God's words weakens our faith and opens the door for fear to enter. And now comes the three-word announcement. It's incredible how simply it is stated by the angel. An announcement that's heard around the world and still being heard 2,000 years later here in Lincoln, Nebraska, as well as millions of other places around the world. He has risen. So simply, so beautifully, and the evidence he gives him is see, look, take note of the very place that you saw him be laid just a few nights ago. And I love this because verse 6 captures the same things that we started the message with in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus Christ is dead. See that in the second line? He was buried. That's in the last line. And he was raised from the dead. And that's in that center line. It captures the same things that Paul is describing and emphasizing. All of these, the very heart of the gospel. Having established the evidence that Jesus is gone, he is risen, he is alive, he's not here. The angel now commissions them in verse 7, while they're still in the tomb, that they are the ones to give verbal testimony. So the angel is handing off the responsibility. He's the initial messenger, and now the baton goes into their hands for them to be the messengers, the announcers. And Paul Minier notes, God does not disclose the resurrection fact except to enlist people in a task. Two things they're told to go and do. First of all, go tell. This is the first time that the disciples have been encouraged and urged, or the followers of Christ, to be urged to go and tell about Jesus. Before it's been, be silent, wait. There will be a time, and this is that time. Go and tell. 
For the first time, they're urged and commanded to do this. No longer keep anything secret. Do not hold back. And secondly, they are to go back to Galilee. It seems so out of sorts here at the tomb that that is where they are to go. But this is where Jesus told them earlier in Mark 14 that they were to go and where he would meet them. David Garland notes, just as the earthly Jesus led his frightened frightened disciples to Jerusalem by going before them, so the risen Christ goes ahead of them still, leading the church. The disciples' shabby performance during the last week of Jesus' life has exposed them as sinners. Now Jesus will regather them as a new people who, in a new way, take up his cross, follow after him, and proclaim God's triumph over Satan, sin, and death. Isn't it interesting? Jesus wants to go back to where he called them, back to where they first met him, back to where he did such ministry, and there appear to them, encourage them, strengthen them, spend his final days with him, with them before he ascends back to heaven. It seems the appearances he will make here outside of the tomb and in the room when the disciples gather and to the disciples rocking on the road to Emmaus are all appearances made not as part of the original intentional plan, but because there was such doubt, such doubt in those opening hours that he didn't wait to Galilee for Galilee to reveal himself, but did so here. And very briefly, I, I don't think it's a, a major part of the story here, uh, but why does God single out Peter? And if you noticed, when we read in, Revela- in 1 Corinthians 15 as well, that Cephas, Peter, is one of the ones named, that there was a very intentional reminding or appearing to, Jesus, uh, to Peter that Jesus wanted to do. Two things I would remind you of, probably all of our minds pop immediately to the denial and the fact that probably from that point to the point that Peter sees Jesus risen, there is a huge sorrow and grieving over what he has done and how he has failed. But I would remind you also, if you remember back in Mark 8, 31 to 33, so this is when Jesus first asked, who do you say that I am? And they first realized, and Peter spoke up, you are the Christ. And if you remember, Jesus then gave the first prophecy that he would go and be killed and he would rise again three days later. And Peter said, over my dead body. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Peter couldn't believe there was going to be a resurrection. So he wasn't going to let Jesus die because he didn't think Jesus would rise from the dead. And so Jesus now wants to make sure he knows what God can do. Verse 8. They then leave the tomb, and shockingly, Mark gives us one sentence. And we'll talk a little bit next week, Lord willing, about perhaps his purpose in that. But with these two assignments, to go and tell all and to go back to Galilee, they went out, an interesting word, fled from the tomb. That's a word you use when you are running from something that is dangerous or terrifying to you. And so all of this experience and the commission they've now been given 
leaves them trembling and astonished in a way that another interesting verb seized them. It had a grip on them. They couldn't shake it off. They were, as we might say, speechless. So they said nothing to anyone because fear dominated them at this point. So what do these final words of Mark mean, especially in light of the fact that none of the other three Gospels tell us this? And Matthew even seems to contradict it and say in Matthew 28, 8, that they departed quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. But I think that's part of what's so discombobulating about all the things that are happening here. Even Matthew's two words, fear and joy, combined together are a pretty unusual thing. Um, But Mark certainly seems to mean here, at least for some time, they were speechless and perhaps said nothing to anyone else until they got back to the disciples. But think of what's going through their mind. Like, how do you announce a resurrection in a convincing way? What are they going to say? And what if someone has taken the body? At this point, they have to take the testimony of the angel entirely. So, fearful silence, disbelief. It's, it's not what we would expect but it is the reality of all of us who follow Jesus. Now, before we draw some reflections from Mark's account, we can be thankful for Matthew, Luke, and John giving us all kinds of additional information about those first hours because there is a lot that takes place that Mark simply chooses not to tell us. I didn't put all of these on slides. I just put the reference, and I would encourage you perhaps even to turn to these, particularly the John 20, because that's a little bit longer. But Luke, first of all, says that returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to the apostles an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. John tells us, starting in verse 1, I'm not going to read all of these verses, but he, he identifies just Mary Magdalene and only telling Peter and one other disciple, likely John, And not announcing a resurrection, but saying, instead, there's been a theft. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and John then race to the tomb. John wins getting there, but Peter boldly goes into the tomb first. There's no mention of any angel there or any angel talking to them. They study the linen themselves, uh, and we're told there that John believed. And then, verse 10 in John 20, then the disciples went back to their homes. What? Perhaps like we will, and forget all about it by tomorrow. John and Matthew Matthew tell us of at least one, probably two encounters of the risen Jesus that were given that very moment in those very confusing hours. So starting in verse 11 of John 20, the camera zooms into Mary, who's weeping, telling the angels who have asked her why she's crying, 
that they've taken away the Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. And she turns around and sees Jesus standing there. Doesn't know it's him. He says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Still doesn't know who he is. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. I will take him away. And in a beautiful moment, Jesus says to her, Mary. And she turns and says to him, Rabboni, teacher. And Jesus says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. Which, if you noticed in Mark verses nine, uh, uh, Mark 16, 9 through 11, that's similar to what we have just been told, although much shorter. And then Matthew also tells us of a revealing of Jesus. The women depart quickly in verse 8 of Matthew 28. From the tomb with fear and great rejoicing, run to tell the disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, exact same message as the angel gave, do not be afraid. Don't let fear paralyze you here. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. We know that they will see him before that because he shows himself. And then Matthew also adds the account that I won't read, but of the, the uh, plan that the religious leaders then come up with when they talk to the guards and they make up the story that his body was stolen by his disciples. And Matthew notes, as he writes this probably 30-some years later, that that's still the story that's being believed by many people. By afternoon and evening of that day, Jesus will show himself at least two more times, perhaps more. There's some other key events that we will note next week before he gives the Great Commission and then ascends back into heaven. Today, let's just think briefly in closing about the implications of the resurrection 2,000 years later. I don't have this on the slide but because I just captured it this morning. But David Garland, the resurrection sets in motion a new story that is not yet finished or resolved. The ending of Mark forces us to enter the story. We are the next chapter. So I just want to encourage you in closing with, in some sense, three simple words. Believe its reality. The reality of the resurrection. Remember, Paul or Jesus' question in John chapter 11, when he announced, right before raising Lazarus from the dead, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Such a critical belief. No one can be saved without it. And so Paul also warns us at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, right before he says, the central greatest things I've told you is a message I received from the Lord and now you heard it, you received it, you believed it, you've been standing in it unless you have stopped believing it 
If you're standing in it, you're being saved. If you hold fast to it, you're being saved. But otherwise, whatever else you're believing, you're believing in vain, for it will not save you. The resurrection is perhaps the truth of the Bible that has been most attacked the last 2,000 years. And it is viciously being attacked in our day because Satan, who loves destruction and death, knows what a powerful truth it is. And he is viciously opposing people knowing about it, people understanding and realizing it, and people believing it to whatever extent he can oppose it. Satan is a liar through and through. And some of his greatest lies of all time are about the resurrection. Paul Washer reminds us, the resurrection stands on the front lines of the gospel war and receives the greatest force of the enemy's onslaught. And I would say that he works often through the world opposing that. The devil rightly understands that the whole of Christianity rises or falls upon this one doctrine. So it is not something we can bend on. It is not something we can compromise. It is not something we can destruct, deconstruct. It is not something we can be wishy and washy about. One of the greatest lies that humans believe within this is, if I had more evidence, I'd believe. But I would remind you of what Jesus taught us in Luke 16 when he told about the rich man and the poor man who both died. And the poor man, because of his faith in the Lord, went to paradise to the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man went to Hades and began his suffering that would last for all of eternity. And at the end of all of that, he says, when he can't change his own circumstances, would you, would you send the poor man back from the dead to tell my brothers, tell my family, before it's too late for them? And Jesus says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, let me just stop right there. Would you believe the resurrection simply from Moses and the prophets? Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If the angel that announced in the tomb that morning, Jesus is risen, came here this morning and announced it, those of you doubting now would not likely be convinced. If Mary and the women came and announced it, and the apostles came and announced it, if even Jesus himself showed up on the stage this morning to show you, most likely if you didn't believe beforehand, you wouldn't believe in seeing him. We don't believe not because there is a lack of evidence. We don't believe because sin has hardened our hearts and blinded our eyes to see the glory of a God who can rise from the dead and raise people from the dead. God doesn't give us a real-time witness of the resurrection. He gave that to a very, very small band of people that he then called to be his witnesses. But he requires that we take their word for it. And now I would remind you of the scene with Thomas later in John chapter 20 that we read from earlier. 
Thomas, who is now noted, sadly, for his doubt. Because he said, I won't believe until I see it with my own eyes. And so Jesus graciously, mercifully appears to Thomas. Tells him to touch him, put his finger there, see his hands, put his hand, put it in his side. And then he makes this statement. Do not disbelieve. Do not disbelieve this. You cannot disbelieve that I am risen from the dead and have conquered death. Just believe. And at that moment, Thomas says, in faith, my Lord and my God. And Jesus teaches this powerful lesson to us today, thousands of years later. Blessed are those who have not seen with their eyes and yet have believed. And so Peter also writes to the early church, though you have not seen him, you're taking the apostle's word, you have loved him. And though you don't, do not see him, you believe in him. And that believing in him, his death, his life, his resurrection, brings a rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's what faith does. It brings this joy and this glory that is a part of the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. We don't need more tangible evidence. I haven't spent any time this morning giving you other apologetic reasons to believe Christ is risen. God wants us to take the word of the witnesses and of the recordings in his word of what has taken place. Hebrews 11 reminds us that faith in its very essence, the very definition of faith is an assurance about things hoped for and a conviction of things not seen. Paul says everybody who follows Jesus has to walk, has to live by faith and not by sight. Romans 10, 17, Paul writes again, faith comes from hearing. Notice it doesn't say faith comes from seeing. Faith comes from hearing, particularly, specifically, the word of Christ, which encapsulates the gospel, the news about who he is and what he has done. So, this moment, you don't need a risen Jesus bodily standing on this stage. You are hearing the word of Christ. And Jesus is asking you in your own spirit, do you believe this? Do you believe it with all of your heart? Do you believe it in such a way it is transforming the way you live this earthly life? If you're here wrestling with whether it's true or not, you're in the company of the women, the apostles, everybody that morning. Thomas, but I pray that you, like every one of them we just mentioned, came to believe that you also will come to believe and that you will trust entirely in Jesus Christ and what he has done in dying for you and in your place and in rising again. And that you will, even sitting in the pew where you are, experience a raising from the dead of your own soul and then an eternal life even beyond the death of this world. 
Granted, it's one of the hardest things in the Bible to believe, but it's one of the most critical. And God has given us all the evidence we need to believe it. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, and most of us, I think, would think that Jesus died for our sins, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you understand all that's going on in that account. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What an incredible weekend that was. The greatest events in all of the world happening in those three days. I call the cross and the empty grave the two great separators from all other religions and all other gods and all other beliefs. What other god would send his very own son lovingly to die in our place and to pay our penalty that we deserve? What other God would do that? What other God can raise people from the dead? There is no other God that does either of those things. Our Lord alone does them. Praise be to his name. May that reality and those truths continue to stun us and stagger us, not into silence, not into fear, but in an incredible joy to go out and to share that truth, and to live in that power, that it would produce much fruit. I want to close the way we began with this statement from Peter, and ask that you join me again in affirming this as the music team comes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to your great mercy, you have caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's leave here today exalting the living, reigning Lord who is the God of our salvation. To the praise of his glory. Amen.